Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. My heart has already been refreshed just by being here and um, being ministered to by your spirit. And I, uh, my heart resonates with Brother Ellis's prayer that we might catch a new a glimpse, a fresh look at the grandeur of the God who has created us for his own glory, the God who has redeemed us through his son Jesus. And it's just been a blessing. It's been a real blessing in my heart to be here. I was, I was blessed by the Sunday school superintendent. I'm sorry, brother, I can't remember your name at the moment. Uh, but he, he read a passage of scripture that was um, ministering to my heart and uh, is what's behind the burden that I bring uh, this morning and again this evening, Lord willing. And there in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Uh, whether you're young or old here, if you're a believer in Christ, you've been a partaker, and you've been a partaker of Christ if you're a believer. Uh, and so the thought that has been going through my mind is the incredible privilege of being a partaker and the power and the joy that comes into our lives when we grow in our understanding of the, of the great privilege that has come to us in knowing Jesus and having heard the gospel and embracing the gospel and growing in the gospel. And so the blessing of being a partaker, let's, let's turn for the uh, first scripture springboard to our thoughts this morning comes out of Isaiah. Thinking about the joy and the power of participation in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the responsibility that we have to urge our souls on to grow in our gratitude to God for the great grace that has come to us through that invitation uh, to come and to experience his grace. I'm going to, I plan to read here, I'm just going to read the entire chapter of 55, Isaiah 55. This is a chapter I refer to sometimes as I read this. Is this the springtime of redemption? <laughs> the, the, so beautifully, God has planned it that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is celebrated in the spring of the year when new life is coming forth. And I really believe that the Christian life is, uh, by God's design, meant to be a continual feast, a continual growing, a continual, um, acknowledgement, a deeper acknowledgement in our hearts of the great grace that has come to us. Uh, it's a lifelong adventure in learning more. Uh, there's no, there's, there will never be a time when the kingdom of God will not uh, grow and expand. And part of that expansion is when just our hearts being set to know him. We thirst after God. And as we thirst after God, he delights to reveal himself to us in greater and fuller ways. And this is a lifelong adventure with God. And it's in that sense that his kingdom continues to expand and to grow and his knowledge uh, flows. The thought here is, is that as we are partakers of his grace, that we also become channels of his grace to those around us. So we cannot drink from the grace of God without it flowing through us and out into the lives of others. 
Um, and so just, uh, just let this wash over you as we read this. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye by, eat, yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God, for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not hither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy, and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you in singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And we don't have time this morning to go through this passage of Scripture and to uh, decipher all the amazing truths that are in this invitation to come and to experience the life of God through Christ. But it's certainly a picture, an invitation of the new covenant and what God is going to do for his people. It's helpful to me to understand that this passage was uh, written in the time of Israel's captivity in Babylon. This invitation was given. And, you know, for many uh, of us, we look at the time when the, when the Jewish nation spent their time in Babylon as a, a time of captivity. And, but a closer look reveals something, that they, um, after their initial um, shock, you might say, of, of being taken captives in the several uh, journeys, uh, groups that were led to, to Babylon, they prospered, they built houses, they married, they raised families, they planted gardens, and that was all good and well. But they became uh, sat quite satisfied, most of them became quite satisfied to live in Babylon and to prosper. The economy was good. You know, there was something really refreshing to them about not having to defend their borders and to keep the enemies at bay. It was peace, it was quiet for the most part, and they prospered there. But among the prospering, there was this group of Jewish people who had a deep, deep love for Zion. And they could not be comforted by the prosperity of their time. Their heart longed to see Zion restored at any cost, whatever the cost. 
if it meant death itself, that was more important to them than to experience the ease of Babylon. Babylon has always been a picture of the world from the Tower of Babel the whole way through scriptures until we come to Revelation, the great city Babylon, the world system. And while many were satisfied to live in that prosperity, there were those who longed to see the glory of the Lord rest upon Mount Zion again. That was their passion. That was their longing. And this passage of scripture gives us that invitation as it gave them that invitation to pursue the Lord, to thirst, to have a, a genuine thirst in their hearts. And in this passage, we see that the grace of God is like rain. It's like rain that comes down upon us and it, it, it waters the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is that seed. You know, a seed contains power within itself to reproduce. And God's word, Jesus says, is seed that is sown. God takes responsibility for that. He sows his seed. His grace is like rain upon that seed that is sown. It's like snow that falls in the wintertime and it melts and, and raises the water level to sustain that which is sown, his seed, his eternal word. But we have a responsibility, and what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to allow the Spirit of God to do that work in us through his word, that good seed of changing our thoughts, that our thoughts can become God's thoughts and that our ways are made straight and that they reveal God's ways. And I find that this is a continual work that the Spirit of God has to do in my life. It's not like it's ever done in this lifetime. We have to urge our hearts on. And whether, what, what determines whether or not that happens in my life is directly connected to my thirst for God. Do I thirst for the living God? And one of the things that we read in the writings of the psalm, psalmist is he says, I thirst. A number of times he says, I thirst for the living God, like a dry, parched land that's just longing for rain so that those seeds that are in the soil can grow and bloom. I thirst. I set my heart to thirst for God. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. That thirst within our soul that um, we experience because we have been partakers of the first Adam can only be quenched as we become a partaker of the second Adam. We come to the living water. Jesus invites us to come and to experience the quenching of that thirst. 1 Corinthians you don't have to turn there. 1 Corinthians 10.4. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says of the children of Israel that all did drink of the same spiritual rock for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was who? It was Christ. That rock was Christ. He was the source of that living water and he is the source of God's grace to us in the new covenant. And the, and the thing that uh, we find so amazing is that if you look at the, at the life of the children of Israel as they went through the wilderness, um, the Hebrew writer keeps pointing this out. You know, they all had these great miracles happening in their lives. They had 
manna falling down out of heaven and sustaining them. God personally sustaining them with the bread of heaven. How amazing is that? Uh, how amazed would you be if God provided bread from heaven for you? And in reality, while that was only in a physical sense, in a, in a spiritual sense, God has provided that bread of heaven for us. And that is Jesus Christ. He provided meat for them. And they were all partakers of that. That is what sustained them, was what God provided for them in a physical way through the wilderness. And then we know the, the, the several occasions where they became uh, so parched with thirst that they began to grumble and to complain. Very, very thirsty. They thought they were going to die. And I don't know if you can imagine what it would be like for a million plus people and all their animals and the little children. And everybody is just like parched with thirst. Uh, that's really a picture of the world that we live in today. It's hard for us to see it in a spiritual sense. I think the commotion that that makes in, in a physical world, the noise, the crying, the complaining, would get your attention probably a lot quicker than what we um, experience today in a spiritual sense. But when we look out upon the world around us, we need to understand that deep within their heart, there's a very, very real thirst. May, they may not even be aware of it, but it's there. And we know it because we know what it is to drink of living waters. And then God met their need by providing water. And the rock rends and the water gushes out. And I understand you can go there today and you can still see where they believe that all happened. You can see where a stream of water uh, flowed through the desert. And they all became partakers of that provision. Every one of them. In order to sustained their life and the life of their children, the life of their animals, they all drank of that rock. In the same way we as Christians, what makes us brothers in Christ is the fact that we have come to Jesus, the only source of living water. And we have drank from that source of living water and we experienced life. We've experienced our thirst being quenched. And what that does for us is it fills our hearts with gratitude. And we want our thoughts to be God's thoughts. And we want our ways to be ways of righteousness as a result of following the footsteps of Jesus. And the ultimate test of our Christianity, whether we are drinking from the spiritual rock or not, is, is God enabling us to walk in the ways of Jesus, in the footsteps of Jesus. Let's go, um, turn in your Bibles now. I think I'm going to stop at another scripture on the way. Let's, let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to Hebrews chapter 8, but let's stop at Hebrews chapter 2. There's a, there's a scripture there, if I can lay my eyes on it, that is coming to my heart, and I want to just pause there for a second. And so the, the point that we're making here is this, is that uh, we want to be partic participants with Christ in a very real way. And just try to, trying to break this down a bit on how do we make that real and practical in our lives. It's easy to think of it as a spiritual concept, but how do we make it very real and very practical in our lives today? 
In Romans 5.12, it says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And that's, that's revealing to us that we all have been participators in the, initial, the original sin of turning our back on God and taking our own way. We have all participated in that. We all, all have come under sin. All therefore are dead. Without exception, we are all dead. And so as we have been, uh, death has come upon all of us through our participation in that original sin, so as Christians we derive our, our spiritual strength from being participants in the life that Jesus Christ is. This is a theme throughout Scripture. Um, we are partakers with him in his death. We are partakers with him in his burial. We are partakers with him in his resurrection. And we are quickened together with him and we're raised up together with him and we're partakers with him as we read in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're partakers with him in his suffering and we will be partakers with him in his glory. And not just when he comes again, not just when we are raised up, but here and now. We have this great privilege of being a partaker of the glory, the glory of his nature. The passage that I was looking for, I think I found here in, in, Peter, in Hebrews chapter 2, In Hebrews chapter 2, I think I'll start reading in verse 12. I think I'll start reading in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 2. For both he that sanctifieth, which is Christ, and they that are sanctified, which is us, are all of one, for which cause... He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church while I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me, forasmuch then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through the death, that through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject unto bondage. I'll just stop reading right there, and let's drop down to verse one of chapter three. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in his house. The point that, that speaks to me out of this passage of Scripture is simply this, that our invitation to become partakers of the glory of God, the very nature of God in our lives, is rooted in the fact that in our helpless state, when we were under the curse of sin, and we, were, we had the, the sentence of death upon us, that our Lord and Savior became a partaker of us, our flesh and blood. He became, although he was God, he became man, he walked among us. He experienced everything that we experienced. He was tempted in every way like we, were, we are tempted today. And therefore, he can nurture us. He can, he can sucker us through our temptations. He can help us bear up under the pressures of life and the pressures of this world because he became one with us. The difference was this, is that he was without sin. In all the temptations he faced, he rested in his father's will. He, 
he thought only his father's thoughts. He says, I don't even speak a word unless it is what my father wants me to speak. He walked straight past. His father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what he did in his time was that he gave us a perfect revelation of the heart of our Heavenly Father. He is that perfect and final revelation. You want to know what God is like? Here it is. You look at Jesus Christ. And that's what the call of this passage is. You consider, you behold, you keep your eyes focused. That's what all the New Testament, if you're going to sum it up, it is this. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Follow hard after Jesus. He is a revelation of the Father that created us. And as we follow hard after Jesus and keep our eyes on Jesus, we become in a portion partakers of who he is. We become those that share in his glory here in time. Just because we have made a profession of faith, the fact that Someone died for you. Um, someone gave your li their life for you. They became a partaker of flesh and blood. And they gave their life for you. Just because that's a reality and just because you believe in that does that not mean that that is going to um, change your life. That it's going to conform you into his likeness unless you apply that truth to your heart and life. Remember a story I read years ago, a true story, of uh, two men that were in the foxholes over in Vietnam. And they were entrenched. They, were, they, were, they became good friends. They were both from the state of Texas, as I recall from the story, David and William. Um, and in that nasty situation, at one point, they tried to advance and come under heavy fire from the North Vietnamese, and uh, they scurried back to their trenches, and David became aware of the fact that William did not make it back. In fact, from his position, he could see him out on the battlefield, and he was still alive, but badly wounded. And he begged his commander to allow him to go out there and try to retrieve his friend. His friend said to him, only an insane man would make an attempt. You know what's out there. You know what kind of firepower we came under when we tried to advance. He said, you're insane. David was not deterred. And he went out and actually managed to get William back to the safety of the trenches, but not without taking bullets himself. Wounds that he later died from. Of course, his parents received the tragic news that while David was held a hero and given awards posthumously, the man he saved lived on. And they grieved deeply, and they wanted to someday meet William. And so once he was discharged from the hospital, they started sending messages to him, telling him they wanted to meet him sometime. And he was like a three-hour drive away from the home where he was, was at. And uh, they didn't get a response back for a long time. They kept pursuing him. 
And it was several years to finally he agreed to come. And one Sunday afternoon, they had this appointment made. They wanted to see this man for whom their son, David, had given his life. And uh, they were supposed to meet for like a one o'clock lunch. And one o'clock came and went, and two o'clock came and went. And about three o'clock, his car pulled into the driveway, and this man got out and came to the house. And it wasn't long until they realized that he was intoxicated. And they come in, he came in, they, they tried to be gracious to him. And the whole time that he was there, he complained about how unfair life had been, about the injuries that he had sustained in the war, about how unfair he had been treated at the hospital and how the government wasn't treating him right and, and compensating him, helping him make a living. Just grumbled and complained and cursed, swore the whole time. And finally, to the great relief of David's parents, William decided it was time to leave. And they walked out onto the porch to say goodbye to him, and he just went off. Never, ever said a word of gratitude for the sacrifice that was made. His life had been saved, but it was never applied. It never made a difference in his life. David's parents stood there on the porch, and when that car went out the driveway, David's mother collapsed into his father's arms and wept bitterly. She said, I can't believe that our precious son gave his life for a wretch like that. It seldom hits us. But the reality is, is that God's precious son gave his life for a wretch like me. And the responsibility that I have to thirst after him, to long for him to do in my heart what only he can do. I can be just like William, and I can get busy in life and lose the wonder of being saved, of being invited to enjoy the richness of his grace. And it makes no difference in my heart when I lose sight of the great salvation that has come to us. Now we're going to Hebrews chapter 8. And verse 6. Hebrews 8 and verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises, for if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regard them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and I will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And I think we'll just stop right there. God is saying this. This is part of the new covenant. And part of the new covenant is this, is that I will write my laws into their minds, and I'm going to write them into their hearts. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to, to me? And how do I make that practical? 
One of the things that we know is that God gives us, he honors the thirst that we have for him. If we pursue him, he says, you're going to find me. If you pursue me with all your what? Anyone tell me? You're going to find me if you, if you seek for me, if you pursue me with all of your heart. That's, that's where we get the term wholeheartedness. You really give yourself to this. You really have to want this to make it happen. And that's, how, that's the only way we can live Christianity and experience the grace of God coming into our hearts and lives and making a difference in our lives and then the grace of God flowing through us to those about us. Ephesians 4.32 says this, that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our what? Anyone? Everyone? Our mind. We're renewed. That means there's something changing. That's, that means the old's going out, something new is coming in. The very spirit of our mind needs renewed because our thoughts are not automatically God's thoughts. They need to be renewed to learn to think God's thoughts after him. Paul says this to the Colossians, and having put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And that's simply talking again about our minds being renewed to where the truth that is in Christ Jesus now has preeminence in our minds. It's, it is the truth of Christ that has renewed us and will renew us, the power of his word. Paul says to the Romans, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. And it is only as our mind is renewed that we can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It takes a renewed mind, learning to think God's thoughts after him. I say sometimes to people that I'm counseling like this, uh, you have a belief window, and you've all uh, been born with a belief window, a set of beliefs, a, set, a way of processing things, a way of thinking. And those thoughts, those, that way of thinking, the things that you believe, actually drive the choices that you make. Now, there are people that you might meet out there that you think are being driven by their emotions, that their choices are being driven by their emotions. But in reality, our choices are always driven by what we believe to be true. And so uh, our choices that we make actually is what becomes our behavior patterns. And you look at someone and you say, wow, they're a bit different. They have a different kind of a, di a different behavior pattern. You know, they make different choices than what I do. Well, what's driving those choices? At the very bottom of it all is that what they believe drives the choices that they make. And so if a young person thinks it's, it's very, very important to be cool with the youth that they're around, whatever the youth, whoever, whatever the, the values are of the youth group tends to drive the choices because they believe, after all, that it's really important to be accepted by this youth group. And so their behavior patterns then follow the choices that they make that are driven by what they believe. Now, our, our focus always tends to be on what? It tends to be on the behavior patterns, doesn't it? Yeah, by nature. That's just our natural tendency. And when Jesus came on the scene, what made Jesus so absolutely different than anybody else is he did not focus on people's behavior patterns. You ever notice that? He felt quite comfortable sitting down with Republicans and tax collectors and choosing his 12 disciples out of the hills of Galilee. He felt quite comfortable with that. 
uh, he felt comfortable with a woman who everyone else looked at as an idolater who you stay as far away from as possible, washing his feet with tears. He felt okay with that. Why was it? Because he had a different value system. He had a set of, a, a different set of truth written on his heart than what the average person did. He didn't look at, he didn't focus on behavior patterns. He could sit at the, at the well and talk with a woman and people were like, she's a Samaritan, what are you doing? And he's like, there's eternal value here. Eternal value. So he chose to not look at people's behavior patterns. No, he didn't excuse them. No way. He never excused sin. Not at all. He died for sin. But he did not focus on people's behavior patterns. He focused on their eternal value. And so what Jesus constantly did in helping us understand how we make this real, his truth, his living water, real in our hearts and lives and how we allow it to flow through us to other people to help other people to get a hold of Jesus and the truth that he is. As he said, you know, this is what you have written on your belief window. If somebody comes up and pokes your eye out, you're going to go poke their eye out. That's, that's what's been written on your belief window. And it's not your fault. What you think and believe is not your fault. You've been a partaker of the first Adam. But let me tell you how it is. If someone comes up to you and pokes your eye out, uh, you move towards that person. You bless them. You pray for them. You, if they slap you up across the, the face, you give them the other cheek and let them slap that side too. If they take you to court and sue you and take away your coat, uh, you know, it's been said, it's been said, but I say unto you, here's how you treat that person. Uh, you take your, your cloak off and you give that to them too. You bless them. You move towards them. You never run from your pain. You always move towards your pain with blessing, with prayer, and with thanksgiving. You've heard it said, but I say. And so what Jesus is saying is for us to make the gospel real in our experience, in our lives, for it to transform us, for us to see the amazing grace of God that comes to us through his love and his mercy and his forgiveness. We have to make it practical in our lives. And the way we do that is we take down our thoughts. The way our, our nature tends to process things. We take that down. We take it into captivity. As one of the young brothers so aptly shared last night. You take it into captivity and you replace it with the truth that is in Christ Jesus. And sometimes if you're like me, that truth keeps falling down and you got to keep putting it back up there and you got to keep putting it back up there. You're a disciple and you're committed to the truth that is in Christ. So if it falls off of your belief window, it falls off from your glasses or before your eyes, you keep putting it back up there. I will follow the commands of Christ. I will be obedient. And in that obedience, so, so he's going to write it in our minds. He most clearly did that by giving us the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the apostles call us time and time again to follow Jesus, to focus on Jesus, to focus on the truth that he is. And he's going to write in our hearts. And how does he do that? He writes it in our hearts. Our faith responds to the truth that he is. Etches it in our hearts. And we become fully persuaded that God's ways are ways of blessing. We heard some of that. Brother Jeff was sharing some of that in Sunday school this morning. 
how it's a process. It don't just happen overnight. We're committed to walking in faith, in the faith that God is right. His words are truth. And if it doesn't make sense, I'm going to be obedient. We see that whole process that our brother was sharing in Sunday school happening in the life of Abraham, where God says, you're going to have a son. And Abraham believed him. It was accounted to him for righteousness. But it took a little while, and it took some errors in the, in the life of Abraham. He made some mistakes in trying to grasp a hold of that truth. He had to keep putting it up before him. And once in a while, it would fall on the floor. And one of those times, Ishmael was born. But he kept coming back to that promise and back to that promise until he was strong and fully persuaded. That's what Scripture says. When he was strong, why did it take so long for Isaac to be born? Did God have a problem? Was he not able? No. Abraham's faith had to bring his heart to the point where he was fully persuaded that God could do this. Sometimes that takes time. God's never in a hurry. He wants, he wants to respond to our faith, but he wants our faith to be solid. He wants us to believe his commands. He wants to believe his truths, that they are meant for our good. And his word is alive. It brings healing to our hearts when we respond to it. And when we come fully persuaded, God moves on our behalf. He does for us what we cannot do ourselves. It becomes a huge blessing in our lives. And then we cannot help but to speak of the things that we have seen and heard in our journey with the Lord Jesus Christ. We become partakers of his power, of his grace. And we're not selfish with that grace. We're talking to other people. You know, I, I heard enthusiasm in a brother that was sharing in the Sunday school class this morning about God's grace in his life this morning. Did you notice that? There was some enthusiasm about God moving on his behalf. We all have a reason to be that way. He has moved on our behalf. He has become a, a living stream of water that we can quench our thirst with. The only source wherein we can quench our thirst. And so when we see people's lives reaping, when we see people reaping the fruit of making wrong choices, we don't focus on their behavior what we do is we say, what happens if you accept this truth that is in Christ Jesus? What happens if you believe that? Change your way of thinking. Embrace this truth. And what happens is they'll begin to make choices based on that truth. An example of that is right there in our community, there's an 84-year-old man there became good friends with, and um, he told me, he said, when I was a young boy in school, he said, we had a really, really hard time at school. My dad was a bad drunk, and he screamed at us, and he beat us, and we didn't want to be home when dad was home. He said it was, it was a mess. And one day, he said, I met old Charles Harmison, a farmer. I know his children, but I never knew Charles. He's been gone a long time. And he said, Charles knew what I was facing, and he called me down to his farm one time. He said, Come down, I want to talk to you. He was an old Methodist man back when Methodists uh, were a little different than they are today. He said, um, I know you're having a hard time, and, and I just want to tell you there's a better way in life. You don't have to grow up, and you don't have to be discouraged about what's happening in your life. I can't change what's happening in your life, but here's what I can do for you. I will walk beside you. I will help you. 
to get your focus on what God has in mind for you in life. And you can spend as much time at my farm as you want working, and I'll actually reimburse you for the time you put in here. You come to church with me. He said, I'll help you get established in life. And there was a neighbor who became a father in the life of Alston Yost. And Alston Yost told me with tears in his eyes, he said, I have no idea what would have ever happened to me if that neighbor wouldn't have reached out and gave me a different path. I think about that, and I think about the difference that we could be making if we realize the power of God's truth to change lives. And I recognize in my own life that I had men in my life who said, John, there's a better way. There's a poem, and I'm trying to get it right now. I'm not sure if I can. I'll just start, see, if, see how far we get. He stood at the crossroads all alone, the sunrise in his face. He had no thought for the world unknown. He was set for a manly race. But the road went east and the road went west, and the man knew not which way was best. And he took the wrong road and went down. He was caught at last in a sinful snare because no one stood at the crossroads there to show him a better road. Another day at the selfsame place, a boy with high hopes stood. He too was seeking the things that the world thought good. But one was there who the way did know, and that one showed him the better way. He walks today the highway fair because one stood at the crossroads there to show him the better way. In my personal testimony, I grew up in a home where there was just a lot of tension. And uh, due to the circumstances, just negativity, just like it was just like a thunderstorm of negativity almost all the time. Nobody was right. We didn't go to church because nobody was right. We didn't join church anywhere because nobody was right. Everybody was wrong. And you don't want to get too close to anybody because you might become like them and you might become a partaker of their sin. And so we live life trying to avoid becoming a partaker of other people's sin. And if you live life that way, there's one thing for sure. You will never become a partaker of the life that is in Jesus Christ. Spiritual pride takes on a lot religiosity and so eventually uh, I broke away from that and, and joined the fellowship that I'm a part of but a lot of that uh, baggage followed me and I, I had spiritual fathers who stepped into my life and kept washing my window for me my belief window and posting the truth there that is in Christ Jesus and some of my brothers seen how important it was for me to release and completely forgive my father for everything. I thought it was important for me to have my father's acceptance. I thought it was important for me to prove to my father I was right and he was wrong. And so I was walking down that same pathway that he had taken in life. Only I thought I was on a different pathway. It was the same pathway. Spiritual pride. And so under the encouragement of brothers, fathers in my life, who kept sharing truth with me, I began to pray that God would help me to forgive, help me to release, help me to love. 
And I got to a point where I felt like I had fully forgiven, I had fully released, but I did not love. And you're not a partaker of the nature of Christ until you love, until you love no matter what. And so I started praying, God, give me a love, a love for my father. I don't need his acceptance. I don't need his approval. I just need to love him. And I remember the day I stopped in. I could take you to the exact spot. And I, I never made it to the door. He came out the door and met me in the carport. And you have to understand, my father was such that he did not believe it was even right to ask me to pray for a meal because he didn't have any confidence I was right with God. And he just verbalized this continually, just continually. Those kind of accusations. And he met me there and he started just this downpour of accusations against all churches, against our church, against me. And I stood there and I looked at my father. I looked him right in the eye and I prayed. And God surrounded me with a love for my father that I never felt. It was just like, it's like I was clothed in a warmth. And I looked in my father's eyes and he must have seen something because I put my finger up. He just stopped talking, which is very unusual. I said, Dad, can I share one thing with you? Just one thing. I said, yeah. Almost a shocked look on his face. He said, yeah, you can do that. And I said, Dad, I really want to follow Jesus. I want to let the truth of his word change my heart completely, totally. And I want to love you as my father. Do you remember the day at Grandpa's viewing where you stood at the head of the casket and you wept and you wept and you said, I wish things could have been different. I wish things could have been different. I wish things could have been different. I said, yeah, I remember that. I said, you realize that unless we get a hold of the grace of God, we're going to repeat that scene all over again. Just a matter of time. I said, can we make a covenant today that from now until one of us is lying in a casket, that we're going to follow the example of Jesus and we're going to love each other. In all of these years, in my father's heart and life, of wanting acceptance and wanting love, wanting approval, just collapsed right there. And my father fell on my shoulder and we wept. I don't know how long we wept. But we made a covenant right there that for the rest of our time on earth, we're going to love each other and we're going to be friends and we're going to seek to exhibit the character of Jesus in our lives, in our relationship. That was the beginning of a lot of change in my life and a slow change in my father's life. My father's still alive and he's still not a member of a church like I wish he was. But my father has changed, not because of me, but because of the grace of God that he's seen in my life, because of the tr what he's seen and, and how the truth of God can change hearts, can break down barriers, can help us to get our focus off of each other's behavior patterns and help each other post the truth that is in Christ on each other's belief windows. And my father and I, my father and I talk a lot, and there's never a time that my father doesn't say, I love you, son, when we go to hang up. And it's just so typical of God in that when we are pursuing 
what we think we need in life. We don't find it. But when we lay down our lives and say, I want Jesus to be everything in my life, suddenly we find what we've longed for. We find love. We find acceptance. We find abundance of God's grace. And I just want to, I just want to encourage each of you to allow the fact, the reality that someone died for you, a wretch like you, become a deep reality in your heart that it makes a difference and that you turn your heart in love, in a love response to the one who gave his life for you. Allow his words to be precious to you. Set your heart on posting them continually on your belief window and making choices based upon his truth. And you'll be amazed at how he directs you through life and the blessing that you'll be able to be, continue to be. It's not that I don't believe that you are, but the blessing that you'll continue to be in the hearts and lives of this community and this brotherhood.